Welcome back or welcome to the Finding Mastery Podcast. I'm Michael Gervais. If you've ever thought that if you've had known then what you know now, that you would have shifted gears in a heartbeat, or if you've ever wanted to you know, start a new or blaze a new path in your life, but then somehow quickly you just stepped on that excitement by saying it's just too late, or there's too many responsibilities that I have, or there's too much that I need to be able to do in my life, that I'll never be able to make that happen, or that's for other people. All of those, let's call it inner dialogue that get in the way of uh, the vision setting or the feeling that comes from the spark inside of you about what could be when you dream about how you'd like to experience life. Or if you've ever wanted to you know, shift your business course, um, but afraid of what others might think if you're running a division or an entrepreneur, you know, those are some of the, the trappings uh, that get in the way of us being able to pursue our best is that in the quiet recesses of our mind's creativity, we explore what's possible, but then somehow we downgrade what is possible because of the inner dialogue that we have with ourselves. And, you know, if, and that even goes the other direction. Like if you've thought about habits that you have that are debilitating your freedom like if you're drinking too much or eating the wrong way or uh, not sleeping enough or doing something that is getting in the way of you being able to be all of who you want to be um, i think you're going to flat out love this conversation finding mastery is brought to you by bubs naturals like you i am mindful about what i put into my body so for me it usually comes down to ingredients and simplicity the shorter the list the better and that's why I've been loving Bubs Naturals. Bubs creates products with high quality, all natural ingredients that are designed to help us get after the adventures in life. For years, I've been a huge fan of their Hydrate or Die electrolyte mix. I mean, that's a fun title for a product, isn't it? It only has six total ingredients. It's packed with electrolytes. I love the taste. No added sugar, no artificial flavors, none of that stuff. It's great for post-workout recovery. That's when I use it. And I also use it during long periods of travel, which I've been doing a lot lately. And so thank you for the hydration here. And a ton of athletes that I know swear by them too. They're currently in just about every MLB locker room. They work closely with the Red Sox, the Yankees, I know the Rangers, Cardinals, Diamondbacks, and, and many more, of course. I'd love for you to go check them out. I think they're doing a really nice job. Just head to bubsnaturals.com slash finding mastery and enter the code finding mastery at checkout for 20% off your first purchase. Again, that's bubs naturals, B U B S naturals.com slash finding mastery with a code finding mastery for 20% off your first purchase. Finding mastery is brought to you by hymns. Hymns is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-informed treatments for erectile dysfunction, ED, hair loss, weight loss, and more. Health struggles like ED are common, but they can be hard to talk about when it comes to finding a solution. That's why HIMSS has been a game changer for so many men. The entire process is 100% online, and if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you, for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. Plus, you can manage your plan directly on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. So if you or a loved one has been struggling with ED, 
I really want to encourage you to go check out hymns. And I know ED often has a psychological component as well. So be sure that you're stacking some psychological best practices into your daily routine as well. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash findingmastery. That's hymns, H-I-M-S dot com slash findingmastery for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash findingmastery. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash EOF for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. And I was fortunate enough to sit down with Rich Roll. And um, many of you know who Rich is, but you know, in essence, he's just a living beacon for change. And he's a living beacon for health. And at what time? At one time, he was voted um, as the fittest man in the world, or one of the fittest men in the world, by Men's Fitness Magazine. He's a father of four. He's a husband. He came flying out of the gates, you know, early in his in his career path, if you will, um, by swimming for Stanford. And so, let alone getting into Stanford, then let alone swimming for Stanford, they're uh, exceptional. And I think, so if you think the age where somebody is accepted into one of the premier schools in the world, um, that would, at that point in time, you know, the question that I would have is, was he or she on the path of mastery? And I asked him that because certainly that's a pinnacle type experience. And his answer, I think, is really important to pay attention to. And then, you know, he, after Stanford, he went and got his law degree at Cornell and um and likely if he would have never come to explore this new version of himself uh, his potential would never have been revealed if he stayed the course of law and as a professional now he's an accomplished vegan ultra endurance athlete and we could drop the word vegan and say he's and the still the, the sentence still holds true is that he's an accomplished ultra endurance athlete and he does it as a vegan is probably a more accurate way of saying it. Um, he's also number one best-selling author, and the title of his book is Finding Ultra. And the subtitle is Rejecting Middle Age, Becoming One of the World's Fittest Men and Discovering Myself. <laughs> it's really cool. It's very fitting, obviously, for the conversations that we're having uh, on this uh, podcast. And then he, he created something um, called the Epic Five Challenge. And... Um, when he describes it in the podcast, I think you'll just go, wow, that's unbelievable. But it's completing five Ironman, uh, Ironman distance triathlons uh, on five islands in Hawaii and doing it under a week, five days. And so he actually set out to do five, five, and five, but he did it um, over the course of six days. Uh, Rich also was a top finisher in 2008 and 2009 in ultra world championships in Hawaii. And people consider that to be one of the just the most grueling uh, endurance races on, on, on the planet. Then we talk a little bit about that, um, what goes into that and how he approaches that. And, you know, he came to ultra late in life and ultra endurance and ultra um, events late in life only after he was sick and tired of just being sick and tired. And he was working to figure out who he was and his place in the world and he used sport to do that, as so many people do. They use their performance aspects, whether it's sport or the arts or creativity or 
whatever it is that they do to figure out their place in life. And I love that. And at the same time, there's a cost to that, which is if we become what we do, then we're who we are is at risk when we go to challenge or test. And so that's the trap that he has not fallen into. And he's undone that by going deeper. And it's, it's awesome. This conversation is, um, it was just fun for me. So, um, we talk about answering the questions, you know, are you human and having a spiritual experience or are you, um, or, or vice versa? Are you spiritual having a human experience? And we talk about the risk of vulnerability and the process of developing courage. And yes, courage is a skill. Um, It can be developed. And the way that we develop courage is by doing things that are difficult and um, going in the face of fear for the the noble cause at hand. And so um, we talk about that. We talk about the cost of grit. And in current times, there's a zeitgeist about how important grit is. While it is, and it is very important, it's also important to understand the other side of grit. And, you know, grit can be um, mixed with some naive optimism, can be something that really keeps people stuck. And we talk about grit for him as well, which is, you know, he would, he knew how to work hard. That's how he got into Stanford. He knew how to work hard. That's how he swam, you know, really well. He knew how to work hard at partying. He knew how to work hard and stay the course. But if he was going to stay the course, it was likely he was not going to be able to pursue who he was at his center and to explore all the boundaries that were um, that he needed to push to be able to really be on the path of mastery and shift what's possible for other people. And that's I mean, that last statement is no statement to be left to be um, pithy by any means, like to shape what's possible for other people is an incredible gift to give the world. So, um, you know, I think that uh, he sums up this concept of mastery really well by saying it's not for the weak of heart, that it's a, it's a warrior's path. And I want to talk about this warrior journey for just a moment. I have such regard for people that are true warriors and um, that go to war and play a zero-sum game and that zero-sum game for a noble cause to be able to uh, do what's right for the human race, um, conceptually at least. And, you know, we can get caught in this conversation about the tactics and strategies and intent of modern-day war or even ancient war, but I just want to put a, um, a placeholder in the spirit of being a true warrior where athletes and combat athletes in, in particular that talk about being a warrior and coaches that talk about going to battle um, you can go to battle within yourself. That makes sense to me. But a game is a game. And sport is, is a celebration of straining and striving and um, learning more about who you are and the challenges if you are daring enough to face them and to do it with other people. But it's not truly a zero-sum game in the sense that if you lose war, you're likely um, your wife or girlfriends or family members are taken and your children are... Uh, the most horrible things are taken uh, from them, life and experience. So let, let's just, you know, maybe put a pl- placeholder in this idea that w- how grateful um, and wonderful it is to be us in modern times, to be able to celebrate the exploration of potential. And these conversations, what a luxury they are. And so anyways, um, I don't want to digress too much on, on that thought, but my regard for people that sacrifice all 
for our freedom is high. And I don't want to just miss uh, the opportunity to share that. And so my hope for this conversation and, you know, um, it's for all of us to identify not only how world-leading thinkers and doers, what is their psychological framework, and again, that's how they see themselves and how they understand how the world works, but also identify their sturdy and robust practices that allow them to explore their potential with the hope that maybe, um, you know, we, we impact the world so much by expanding what others think is possible. And the essence is to hope to provide all of us with ways that we can train our mind and our craft in a similar fashion to the exceptional leaders but or exceptional performers, but not exactly how they do it, but the spirit behind that. And the ultimate goal is not to follow what these men and women have done, but rather to work to understand what they're searching for and to seek the same. And I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, Rich Roll was one of the uh, important people in my uh, wanting to start a podcast. And so we talk a little bit about that. So I hope you have a great time and enjoy this conversation. And uh, thank you for uh, all the support and, and everything that's been going on on, on uh, surrounding these conversations to date. So enjoy the conversation with Rich Roll. Rich, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, man, my pleasure. I'm so psyched to be here. I'm having uh, flashbacks of <laughs> of when we sat here. When was that, like a year and a half ago or something I, like I that? I think it was. Uh-huh. And um, what, do you remember the episode on your podcast that that was, what the number was? I don't remember the number. Because I just checked recently, and you're up to somewhere around 200. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just posted 199. <laughs> I think you're down around maybe... In the 70s, perhaps? Yes. Something like oh, that. it was 76. Is that what it yeah. is? Yeah. Um, I can see the image that you posted. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So that was like uh, probably about a year and a half ago. And it was the reason. So that experience was so rewarding for me. And I enjoyed it so much. I had done other podcasts, but I hadn't enjoyed it. It felt mechanical. And when you and I engaged in the conversation, it felt real and it felt meaningful and there was purpose to it. And I appreciated it so much that I wanted more. <laughs> and for me. Right. Uh And so I felt like during that conversation, it was like this mutual win for both of us. And I wanted to create that for me and other people uh, that I'm friends with. Yeah, that's that's beautiful, man. I love it. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you. And uh, and that was a great episode. Still one of my most popular episodes. And I'm hoping we can reprise it. Yeah, (laughs) let's do it. Yeah, 100 percent. But uh, when you reached out to me. I don't know how much, how long ago it was after that, but you're like, oh, I'm thinking about doing a podcast. I was, I was psyched, man, because I think this is a great medium uh, for you to communicate, you know, the work that you do, and I think it could be so helpful to so many people. So I was stoked, and I was like, whatever you need, man. Like, uh, you know, ask me any questions about gear or whatever. So I'm so pleased to see it up on its feet and uh, and rocking out, man. It's totally appreciate the support, and it was great trying to navigate like. Where do I get a microphone? What kind of recorder do I get? What's the right setup for computer or not computer? And you guided me through that thing. And so, um, and it's not easy. No, <laughs> it's not. It's, it's a weird thing because there's no barrier to entry. You know, it's, it's, yeah. And it's not that complicated, but you do kind of have to set aside a day and go, all right, how do you do this? And there are more steps than I think there should be. Like it's, it's, it should be a little bit simpler, I think, than it is. There's a couple of hoops you got to jump through. But once you figure it out, um, it's no big deal. But I do, you know, like we were talking a little bit before the podcast, I think people uh, don't appreciate or fully understand how much work it is. 
especially when you want to do it well. And uh, it's it's quite a time commitment. So, you know, when you when you embark on this journey, uh, you know, I think maybe you know I've looked back on it and go if I if I knew how much work it was going to be. I don't know, you it know? really is a lot of work. But uh, but yeah. it's been in, it's been incredibly um, gratifying and uh, has improved my life in so many ways and I hope that you're having the same experience. I am I am enjoying I'm enjoying sitting down with people that I respect and have regard for and asking them questions that I'm curious about and it feels like it's a mutual win with uh-huh. most of my conversations so let's see what happens today. Yeah, it's also the greatest scam in the world because you can call anybody up and hoodwink <laughs> them into sitting down with you and answering all your questions <laughs> just because they're holding a microphone, you know. It's silly, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. It's a great way to accelerate learning though. Mm -hmm. and for people listening and and the two of us as well. My hope for today after this conversation is that um, you and I will maybe see the world just a little differently. And that, that is always my hope with most conversations. And I I sent a text to my wife today and the the romantic in me will be revealed right now. And I I sent her a text and I said, because I've been on the road for, I think it's been about nine days. And I said, um, I can't wait to see you if thoughts experiences and people fundamentally shape who we are. I've had lots of thoughts. I've met lots of people. I have some great experiences. I can't wait to know yours and I can't wait to meet you again is basically wow. uh, was, was the thought. And you want to know how she responded? Uh-huh. Wow. <laughs> Stop your bullshit, Mike. <laughs> I was just going to say like your romanticism. I hope my wife doesn't listen to this. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to look like a schlub for not yeah. sending some kind of text like that. Oh, God. Yeah. And, um, so she holds me so honest, you know, it's great. Uh-huh. And so, okay. Um, the, I, I don't think um, I want to do justice to the, the activities that you do, but more importantly, who you are that precedes the activity that you do. Mm. And let me take a quick run at this and then course correct me if I'm too shallow or I don't give you enough credit for particular parts of your life. But um, so you've done some amazing feats and you've created some amazing feats. And there's two in particular, the Ultraman and the epic five mm-hmm. and so the epic five is uh, the doing of the thing is um five ultra marathons or five ultra five iron man five so, so, thank you five iron men's across five um uh what's it called islands, islands. Uh, on Hawaiian the islands, islands. right mm-hmm. and and that is that in five days the goal is to do it in five days we fell a little bit short due to some technical unforeseen difficulties we got it done in about six and a half days okay now, there's two parts to that, and uh, th- we'll get to the second activity that uh, grabbed my attention uh, as well. But there's two parts. Of it. There's one, the idea that you can do something like that, and the second is to create something that is so challenging that it's purposely going to test you. And the doing of it is one thing, and the creating of it is a second, but then the man before both of those is what I'm more interested in. Mm. And so, okay, we're going to go deep. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe by default. I'm not sure. But your, your concern that you, your question might be too shallow is uh, not to be worried about. Okay, good. Because I know you know. And on that note, I, you've gone to dark places. You understand the depth of what it means to be a human, and you face down difficult parts of your life, which hopefully we'll be able to to um, reveal or unpack and, and understand. So you understand depth. And this is one of the reasons I'm excited to see where this conversation goes. Because oftentimes what I'll do is make a promise to people. And sometimes it's a silent promise. It's just to myself that I promise I'll be able to go um, as deep or deeper than you go 
and that's my work as as um, a practitioner, as a maybe yeah, as we'll use that word as a practitioner. That if somebody's going to go deeper than I am, I've done them an incredible disservice. At the same time, I have to know how to stay on the surface and have fun and talk about A, B, and C surface things to get us to a place of dancing mm-hmm. that we can have meaningful conversations. And I don't feel like we, you and I need to do the surface piece. Like mm-hmm. we're just going to get there no, quickly. We're just going to go right into it. <laughs> okay. So what what is it that allowed you to push yourself to such a level that you thought you could do five consecutive Ironmans across five different islands? What is it that led me to believe that it was possible? That's right. Um, that's a great question. Uh, I, I have no glib, pithy answer to that. Um, I think that, you know, first and foremost, um, just sort of backing up a little bit, I would say that, that for me, you know, this sort of athletic tableau is really, you know, an expression of, of, of a spiritual journey, what's always been a spiritual journey for me. Um, and at the, the sort of center of that, is trying to discover greater truths about myself or to um, develop a deeper, more meaningful relationship with myself. That's what motivated me to get into ultra-endurance sports in the first place. It wasn't about seeing if I could make a podium or you know how many people I could beat. I really got into it to grapple with, wrestle with questions I was having about my place in the world, quite frankly. And the training, the sort of day-to-day training of that was like a good sort of crucible for asking and answering those questions for myself. And the, the, the athletic events themselves, the races, are really kind of an expression of that journey of getting there. So by the time I lined up for, for Epic Five, I'd already done the Ultraman race twice, which is a double Ironman distance. Three In, day, it's invite three only, day. right? Yeah, it's, a, it's this amazing race just to kind of encapsulate it quickly that has been held on the big island of Hawaii. It's going on like 30 years now. Um, It's a double Ironman distance, three-day stage race that circumnavigates the big island of Hawaii. Uh, It's an incredible event that that really uh, captured my imagination initially because it was sort of like what Ironman was like back in 1979 when it first began. Like there's no media, there's no prize money, they don't even close the roads, you know, for the cycling or the running or anything like that. And it's just 35 people that are, it's an invitation only a, a based event, as you mentioned. And it really um, is this perfect kind of event to test the limits of your, you know, the outside envelope of your, your athletic capabilities, but really to have this kind of life transformative experience, which is what drew me to it initially. Um, is the transform, transformative, <laughs> transformative experience the training or is it the testing on game day, race day? I think it's both. I mean, the training that I had to endure, you know, to get ready for that, because I didn't even begin training until I was, you know, 41 years old. Um, 40, 41 is when I started to get into it. Um, the training was incredibly, you know, demanding, and I learned so much about myself just in that phase alone. Um, the race itself, though, then tested me to a whole different level. Yeah. Um, and there's something about, you know, the energy of the Big Island that's that's quite special, I think, that, that really kind of brings out the best and the worst of you and really connects you with who you really are. And I was met with challenges there that, that you know, forced me to make decisions um, that I think really revealed character, you know, and, and that's what I was seeking out of it. Um, and that's what I received out of that. So uh, 
by the time I got to Epic Five, I knew I was capable of, of doing some crazy stuff, but you know, Epic Five was kind of next level. And I wasn't sure if I could do it. You know, I wasn't sure. And that's what's exciting about it. No one had ever even tried to do it before. So my buddy Jason Lester and I set out to it wasn't like we're gonna make this pronouncement about redefining the limits of human endurance. We were just two dudes who were <laughs> on our own with a couple friends helping us out to just see if it was possible. So in that sense, I don't I didn't feel any giant external pressure like the world was watching or anything like that. Um but you know that that experience, which was much more like an adventure because it wasn't a race, uh, really I think um, you know took things to the next level in terms of you know revealing inner capabilities that I think that we we all have. You know, and, and one of the people that originally inspired me to believe that I could even entertain the possibility of of taking on these events in the first place was um, a guy called David Goggins. He was an amazing Navy SEAL for your listeners. You're nodding as if, so it sounds like you know he's, who he is. He's a friend of the Seattle Seahawks. Okay, so yeah. incredible guy, as you know, right? Mm -hmm. Like one of the most taciturn, intense individuals to ever walk planet Earth. And he's a guy who who uh, has done some amazing things as a Navy, as a Navy SEAL, uh, but in the wake of losing uh, some some fellow, some friends of his in a helicopter crash, set about honoring their death and raising money for charity um, by tackling the 10 most difficult endurance challenges on the planet. And Ultraman was one of the races that he had done. And I read about him participating in the, in this event. He'd done quite well, despite the fact that he weighs like 260 pounds, had never really been a runner. Uh, I think he rode the bicycle leg of Ultraman with tennis shoes, duct tape to the pedal of a loner bike. Like it's this crazy story, right? Um, but one thing yours, that he yours said, is, yours is not that different though. It's, 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 you didn't own a bike a couple years. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I had like, when I read about David Goggins and I was like, if that guy can do it, you know, maybe I can do it too. And I, I did, my wife bought me a bike for my 40th birthday. And right. that was the beginning of the, the journey towards, towards that race. Okay. So then I want to hear what you're about to, I, I know oh. I cut you off about what he was okay. going to say, but there was this thought that I wanted to grab, which is, uh, your, your wife bought you a bike at 40 and at 41, you're running an invite only, or you're, you're racing in an invite only, um, endurance, uh, you know, so how does, how does that happen? Well, yeah, what happened was, um, it was actually 42. So it was about okay. a two year kind of transition period. But when I was like shortly before I turned 40, when I was 39, I was your classic couch potato, you know, hurtling into middle age, uh, on a crash course with an existential crisis about my life as well as a health crisis. Cause I was about 50 pounds overweight, uh, junk food junkie. You know, I I'm in recovery for a long time for drugs and alcohol, but I think, you know, food has probably always been my first drug of choice. And, mm. you know, I just didn't really, I had been a swimmer in college, um, in my youth, but when swimming was over, that was over. And I was a corporate lawyer and just, you know, not really tending to my health and wellness in a very proactive way. And so, okay, hold on now. Hold on now. So you <laughs> run over that you were a swimmer. It yeah. was a small little school. It was a tiny little, uh, program known as, uh, the Stanford university <laughs> swimming program. Yeah. Small, so let me know. just, but let me clarify, like I had the good fortune of swimming, um, at Stanford university in the late 1980s. We won NC2As a couple of years when I was there and I, I, I got to train with the best guys in the world, like Pablo Morales, uh, John Moffat, Jeff Kostoff, Dave Bottom. These guys were like legends back then. 
Um, but I was a bench warmer. I was a walk on, you know, I could have gone to another school and been a scholarship athlete, but I really wanted to take a crack at, at, you know, being a, being a small fish in a big pond. Did you get to, did you get into the university on athletics or, uh, primarily, or was it academics or the, obviously you need at Stanford, you need the merger of both, but what was the beginning entry point? For yeah, I mean, to- I did I did well in school, and I went to a you know a really good school, high school in Washington D.C. where I grew up. Um, so I think it was a mix of both. Uh, but swimming, you know, I was a good swimmer in high school, and I was definitely recruited at colleges. And you know, I had my choice of a bunch of different places to go to. Why did you do well in high school? In school. Um, I did well. I didn't, you know, I actually struggled in school when I was a kid. I had a real difficult time learning. Uh, I was kind of a loner kid, uh, much to myself, had difficulty making friends. And, and I remember being in like third or fourth grade and and falling way behind, you know, like I, I had, I wasn't learning disabled, but I definitely had difficulty. And it wasn't until swimming came into the picture around the time I was about, 12 or 13. And it was really the first thing that I was naturally good at. Uh, um, and I started to kind of double down in that arena and I was never the most talented swimmer, but I, I learned very early on that I could bridge the talent deficit gap by, by virtue of work ethic. And so I, I started to solve that equation of what happens when you put the work in and you start to see results. And I was seeing that in the pool and it was happening rapidly for me around age 15 and 16. And so is that because you wanted to get better at swimming? I did. It was it was the one thing that I felt like I could I could do to distinguish myself. Yeah. Okay, so there's even at that young age there was some need for identity um recognition. Definitely. Yeah, and then can I keep going? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So then why did at age 13, 14, 15 did you have that need, that compelling need to be noticed? That's the $64 question, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know uh, Dr. Gabor Mate? No. Oh, he's a he's an amazing um, mind in the field of addiction medicine. Mm-hmm. And I had him on my podcast, and he flipped the switch on me and started asking me similar questions. <laughs> 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 you know, I I grew up in a in a I grew up with two parents who loved me very much, who are still married, and all my needs were met. We grew up like upper middle class. Um, you know, I, is I that, never, is that upper middle or middle upper, upper middle class, upper middle. Yeah. My so, dad is a government lawyer turned private practice, corporate lawyer in, yeah, in Washington DC. And, okay. and, you know, I went to a private high school with the coat and tie and the whole thing. And like I said, you know, always never felt like I fit in or, you know, I had difficulty socially. Um, but do you think you were but, wired, wired that way or your environment? Um, didn't quite support you in the ways that uh, recognized who you were at your center. As yeah, opposed the to the environment played a big part in that. You know, yeah. I, I definitely grew up in a very achievement-oriented household. Education was was a very you know potent priority. Okay. Um, and I struggled with that initially. And did you have felt, a, did you have ADD? No, I don't. I was never diagnosed as as having ADD. I found that swimmers. In particular, it's a great kind of training for ADD because hmm. if you if you have some sort of it comp- exhausts you so thoroughly, yeah, and you're staring at a black line, yeah, and it's repetitive and it's an over and over and over again experience. Hmm. And if there's some kind of um, soothingness that could come from that agony, that uh, it would it, one of those would be that the mind doesn't bounce all over the place; it just right. kind of gets centered. It's almost meditative, but you have to go through some physical pain to get to that space. Hmm. 
Yeah, I think even taking that a step further, you know, for me, it was a safe place. Like I was bullied in high school and, you know, I just, high school is a very difficult time for me. And so when I was in ninth grade, like the pool was like the place that I could go. go. When my head was underwater, you know, all that noise quieted and I just felt like I was home, you know, and I loved it. And it was Mm. loving me back, you know, the harder I worked, the more it gave me. And really that's what my life became about. I became very focused on just, you know, swimming that became my thing so when i was in high school i was up every morning at four forty-five. morning practice school practice again after school three to five homework lights out at nine finding mastery is brought to you by apollo neuro i am really excited about what apollo neuro is building if you haven't had the chance yet i highly recommend that you go check out the conversation i had with their co-founder dr david rabin On the podcast, it is well worth a listen. Unlike traditional wearables that simply track your biometrics, Apollo is doing it totally differently. Apollo Neuro is designed to actively improve your health by enhancing sleep, relaxation, energy, and focus. So how's it work? Developed by neuroscientists and physicians, Apollo delivers these soothing little vibrations. They call them Apollo vibes that are like music your body can feel. More rapid vibrations help to improve your energy and focus, while the slower vibrations help to promote rest and digest in your body. And the best part for me, they're grounded in good science. Apollo has been tested by thousands of users in clinical and real-world trials. I would love for you to give it a go. It's making a meaningful difference in my life. And because you're listening to this podcast, you can receive an exclusive 15% off an Apollo wearable. Just head to apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery and use the code findingmastery at checkout. This is an exclusive offer. It's only for us here at Finding Mastery. So be sure to use the code at checkout. Again, that's Apollo, A-P-O-L-L-O, Apollo Neuro, N-E-U-R-O, apolloneuro.com slash findingmastery or use the code Finding Mastery at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Finding Mastery is brought to you by Cured. If there's one big rock to get into the container when it comes to dialing in your wellness, one thing that stands out among the rest is sleep. Whether it be improved physical health, mental health, performance, creativity, quality sleep is the gift that keeps on giving. And I'm sure many of you are familiar with the science that supports that. And if you're struggling with sleep or you just want to dial it in a bit further, Cured's Zen formula just might be a great solution for you. Zen is a nootropic that is formulated by Cure's very own in-house clinical herbalist. And it contains a blend of reishi mushroom, ashwagandha, chamomile, passionflower, and broad-spectrum CBD. That is a powerhouse combination. Zen could be a great little addition to your bedtime routine. They recommend taking it about 45 minutes before hopping into bed to let the reishi and ashwagandha and chamomile and the CBD do their thing. So right now, because you're listening to this podcast, Cured is hooking you up with a great offer. You can try Zen for 20% off when you visit curednutrition.com slash findingmastery and you use the code findingmastery at checkout. That's Cured, C-U-R-E-D, Cured, nutrition.com slash finding mastery and enter the code finding mastery at checkout to save 
20%. So, okay. So now I'm understanding a little bit about that recognition piece, like the need or um, an achievement focused family unit, um, not, not misguided by any attempt, mm -hmm. but achievement focused and value of education. And your dad sounds uber successful and that there was that, um, the, the natural glow that would happen in particular families, probably your family of when somebody does something well, there was a natural glow or buzz that would take place around it. And you said, okay, well I can get that glow and buzz through swimming. Mm -hmm. And it was also an escape from being bullied. Exactly. Yeah. And that bullying is such, uh, it, it's awful. Mm. You know, I'm looking at you. I'm not, I don't know if you want to go into that space or not, but bullying is such a, um, as an, let me say it this way. As an adult, I think um, many people are bullied and we don't talk about it, but people are bullied often by uh, the perception of what others might think of us. We're bullied by lights. We're bullied by the need for recognition. We're bullied by the need to not, the, the thought that we're not good enough. Um, and so there is, there is some adult bullying that takes place and it happens in hallways mm. in corporate America and entrepreneurship as well. Very similar to high school experiences, but we have more complicated ways of thinking about it as adults than we do as, as young children. And I mean, do you want to go into any of the bullying stuff at all? Yeah. I mean, thank God the internet didn't exist back then. You know, I feel mm. like it's all very heightened now, you know, it must be, I think it's a lot more difficult for young people now because, because of the way the internet operates, but you know, to, 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 to take it back. I mean, I think that, that, you know, I was always a sensitive kid when I was, you know, when I was in like fifth and sixth grade, I was in a different school that kind of fostered that sort of, you know, creative artistic kind of child. And I, and I flourished in that environment. I was in this, the school plays and I loved it and I had friends. And then I went into, um, a very kind of macho oriented, you know, uh, school that in many ways is kind of a throwback. Like it's stuck in a different time. Mm. Like I said, coat and tie, it's all about football and lacrosse. You know, I can't throw a ball or, you know, shoot a basket to save my life. I tried to play basketball. I made the team, but I was the bench warmer and I just, I just was no good, you know, like, and I was made fun of and I was kind of a social pariah, um, in a, in a school that, that is, you know, kind of, uh, how, how do I say it? you know, prioritized like the sort of machismo, macho, type A, traditional sports. Um, what was the greatest cost to being bullied? I think it, I think it, uh, looking back now. Yeah. I think it, um, it brutalized my self-esteem and I, and it made me withdraw, you know, it made me withdraw. And then I thought, well, I just, I can't count on anyone else. I can only count on myself. And so I've always gravitated towards pursuits where the bottom line is a direct relation to yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, like swimming is that in many ways. It's just, there's no, it's, yeah, you're on a swim team, but you know, how fast you swim in an event is really comes down to you. There you go. And, and earlier in our conversation, you said that you were using sport as a way to figure out who you were, how you fit in the world, a spiritual journey, if you will. And I'm, I'm curious now with the context of where you came from, have you found it? Have you found what you're looking for? Yeah, I think that I, I think that I have. I really think that I have. Yeah. Can you it only took me until age 48 <laughs> to figure it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny just to kind of backstep a little bit. 
I loved being on the Stanford swim team. I loved it so much that I didn't really care if I was the bench warmer. Like my own personal performance became very secondary to just being part of that team because it gave me a sense of belonging. Um, because when I got to Stanford, suddenly the swim team, they're like, you know, like they're like the dudes, yeah. you know, on campus at that time. And I felt like I was part of something that I, that, that I was very connected to that was bigger than myself. And I think that's all I was searching for all along, right? I think that was much more important to me. I thought I think that like my personal performances in the pool were a vehicle towards just trying to connect with other people in a more meaningful way. I think that's the entire, um, even in the most alpha competitor predator environments, that is it. Mm-hmm. And but we somehow we lose our way, and yeah. because early on when we're good at something, we get such recognition. I used the word glow before, but we get such recognition for the achievement that we've demonstrated or the hype of the potential achievement that the people's identity becomes fused with the need for achievement. Mm. And that becomes this unbelievable, unbelievably large trap that we step into. And sometimes mm-hmm. we can't, people can't get their themselves out of it. Mm-hmm. At the same time, it might be the greatest gift that some people can experience because this achievement allows them to say, okay, there's something I have to offer to other people. And, and it ends up circumventing itself in a really wonderful way that it's about giving to other people, that mm. sport is about giving, right? And so, so often I think many people look at sport and say these selfish, narcissistic, you know, obsessive compulsive, which these are all true traits yes. of some of the best in the world. However, at, the, at a deeper level for many, not all, that there is an incredible give to others along the path. And that's the only way that I understand that we can truly become great is the relationships that we build with other people. Yeah, and that's what it's become for me now. You know, uh, I haven't competed since 2011, but as a result of the things that I have been able to achieve athletically, um, now for me, what gets me excited, like all the motivation that I poured into training between the years of 2008 and 2011, I can channel that, that is now channeled into being of service to other people. And what gets me excited and out of bed in the morning is the challenge of trying to help other people improve their lives, live, live healthier lives, live more fulfilling lives, because we're sort of built into my athletic journey is this kind of life transformative transformative aspect to it of changing careers and all these other things. And, and, you know, by way of the books that I've written and the podcasts that I do, you know, there's a lot of people trapped in lives that, 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 uh, they feel trapped in, they feel imprisoned by life that they feel like they didn't even choose. And so to the extent that my story and the work that I do can help unlock that for people and help them find another path or another way, like that's the gift for me. And that's, what sport has given me when you ask me, you know, do you feel like you've answered that question for yourself? You know, yeah, I have. And what I've realized is that the power of owning my story and sharing my story in a vulnerable, authentic, and as honest as possible way can provide, you know, hopefully, um, some tools and that key for people to unlock their own, you know, their own door. What's allowed you to have the courage to speak what is truthful for you? sobriety my journey through recovery the journey through it yeah yeah so the process of building the courage to be honest for sure i mean 
you know, when I talked about loving being on the Stanford swim team, the other, the flip side of that is that drugs and alcohol destroyed my swimming career, you know, and I, oh, you were using while at Stanford. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And after my freshman year, it was just a disaster. So, and it was many, many years before I got sober. Um, but my kind of reintroduction to athleticism in my forties in some ways was also an attempt to kind of capture the potential that I feel like I never really realized as a college athlete. Um, but you know, I went to rehab when I was 31. Did you have addiction in your family? It's funny. No, my parents are not alcoholic. I mean, if you trace it back far enough, yeah, there's always somebody, Um, but it wasn't like in my everyday experience, you know? And so when it happened to me, it was very frightening for my parents. They didn't have a lot of experience with being around that. And it was dark, man. It was, you know, at the end, Look, it was, it works in the beginning. It works, right? Like, like I said, I was a very isolated, lonely kid. I had trouble socially connecting with other people. You go to college, you go to parties, you start drinking. Suddenly you're talking to girls and you're flirting and you're having a good time. Like it was a miracle drug. It was, you know, I always say it was like the answer to every, every problem that I didn't know that I had, like that sudden feeling of like being wrapped in a warm blanket and feeling okay, you know, in your own skin was like a new sensation for me. And it was amazing. And I think it did unpack some social skills that, you know, needed developing. So in that sense, I can credit it, but you know, it works until it stops working. And it wasn't long before it stopped working and it started to, you know, denigrate every aspect of my life and, you know, undermine my goals and kind of strip me of everything aspirational. I mean, when I was a senior in high school, I got into every college I applied to. I got into Harvard. I got into Princeton. I got into Stanford. I was a top student. Like I had, you know, it was the life of Riley. Like I had, you know, the world at my feet and I destroyed all that. But your self-esteem. Right. That's true. Okay. So beneath all of that. Right. Yeah. And that, that there's this idea that I play with is that it's hard to outperform your self-concept. Right. And that catches up to you. Yeah. And so you might get one or two glimpses when you do outperform your self-concept and it can change the way you think about yourself. But when you're esteem and and let's define esteem, the global idea of how you feel about yourself, um, when that becomes uh, just like Swiss cheese and it's just it's Mm -hmm. a mess. (laughs) The truth will be revealed. Yeah. Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you had the external forward facing life of Riley, you know, the aspirational whatever he. Uh, every parent would hope their kid would experience, but inside there was, there was pain. And in that pain, uh, the lubrication of alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be for people, what it does, I think what it does is it strips us from feeling awkward. And when we don't do the work of being awkward and being social at the same time, we end up not knowing how to be social. Mm-hmm. But for you, what it did, it sounds like, is it stripped your, that, that um, awkwardness and it gave you freedom to have fun to not be uh, pensive about being abused by other people because that's what bullies do, right? Socially abuse you or us. And so, um, but then that spiraled so quickly for you that you lost grips of. Um, yeah. I mean, that's, the, the that's pretty mission. much it. Yeah. That's pretty much it. I mean, I think, you know, for me, very poor self-esteem, you know, runs very deep and had to be reconciled with eventually, you know? And so, you know, what starts out as a good time, you know, morphs into dependence, you know, and turns into like a really dark need, you know? So 
at the end, by the time I was 31, you know, it was not unusual for me to have a vodka tonic in the shower, you know, in the morning and put a suit on and drive to my corporate law job with a tall boy between my legs and sneak drinks during the day and hide my empties and do all that crazy stuff that alcoholics do, you know, and started collecting DUIs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Like it, it all came crashing down on me, including like a failed marriage. That's a whole sordid affair. And, uh, and ended up in a rehab where I stayed for a hundred days, like, which is, that's a long time to that's go a for a rehab. I was up in rural Oregon and, and I remember very early on in that experience, one of the counselors posing a question to me when he said, are you a human being having a spiritual experience? Are you, are you a human having a spiritual experience or are you a spiritual being having a human experience? Right. And I was like, what? <laughs> I don't know what, <laughs> I don't understand the question, like mm. let alone know how to answer that question. And that orientation is radically opposing. Yeah. And, and, and that was a place where for the very first time I learned how to be honest, you know, I learned how to be vulnerable. I learned how to like, I learned the power of what happens when you have the courage to share your deepest, darkest truths about yourself and release them. Hmm. You know, what, what, what is the insight that you developed from that? That vulnerability is not cowardice, but courage. Yeah. And packed into that is, is the ability to heal when you have that courage to do that. And the risk, though, is that when you're vulnerable, it won't be met or understood or valued um, by somebody else. Hmm. And so when we're especially for somebody who's been beat up socially, bullying, right, is the courage to do so. Uh, to be vulnerable with another person is what we're talking about, right? right? We, like this type of vulnerability doesn't happen by ourselves unless we're writing. And then one day we put it out into the world, but still someone will comment on it at some point. Right. So that vulnerability, the risk is that we'll be exposed and it won't be met. And can you share a couple insights on how you did the work to develop the courage in small? So we eat elephants one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I don't think I'm going to say that ever again because I just watched a documentary on what's happening to elephants. Uh, I don't think I'll ever say that, that yeah, phrase again. Okay. Yeah. So I'm self-editing. elephants anyway? Yeah. I, well, I guess some people do. I don't know. But it's awful what's happening to our elephant population. 400,000 elephants left, killing off uh, 10,000 a year. No. Yeah, it's, which which documentary was it? I, you know, I can't remember. Yeah. I got a whole bunch of other documentaries. I can give you a list. Yeah. It's, uh, it's awful. So, um, okay. So what was I saying? So we start small mm -hmm. and then we build tolerance. This is a normal arc, but some people just go for it and they jump off the high dive and they know that they, uh, after they've hit, you know, the water at a speed that they're afraid of feeling that pain, that they realize that they can swim again. And so for you, did you start small or did you just go big on vulnerability? Um, well, I started small in the sense that, you know, it was a, it was a daily practice of being around other, you know, drunks and drug addicts and, and, and learning how to share openly about how I was actually living my life Got because it. it had been such a secret look, you know, from the outside looking in, everybody knew I was a disaster. They knew what, what was going on, but I would lie to myself and think that I was getting away with things. But I thought prior to that experience that no one would understand me. Like there is not a single person on planet earth who could possibly understand why I would behave this way. That's a very lonely, alienating place to be. And then you go to rehab and you realize like, Oh, but wait, wait, what was the one thing that you didn't think people would understand? 
what was the statement or the thing that would bang around in, inside you? Just the, the daily insanity of the choices that I was making. Like what would possess somebody to wake up in the morning and like drink vodka immediately upon waking? You know, it's like, like that's not how I was raised. And, you know, here I am, I've got this Stanford degree. Somehow I managed to graduate from Cornell Law School. Like, I, you know, like I did crazy stuff through law school that I thought no one knew that I was doing. And, and if anybody knew, they would have never let me graduate. You know, so it's the stakes were very high. How did you get over? How did you how did you get a degree from Stanford, then get into Cornell Law, no less, and be able to be successful at both of those outwardly, not inwardly, but outwardly? And how did you do that? And then the second part of the question I want to ask was, at that point, you're at the pinnacle of the academic experience in America. And were you at that point on a path of mastery? I know. I, I know. I asked yeah, you two yeah. So, questions. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So, to let's let's figure this out. So, the first part of the question: how? how did you do it? Yeah. How did I do it? Well, I think I I relied on on a quality that I have that I think has has done well for me and also been my ruin, which is a great capacity for self will. Um, in in recovery self, parlance, self will. In recovery parlance, they call it self will run riot. So my whole life, like we, we were talking about how I was able to bridge the talent gap. Like, again, I was not the most talented swimmer. I certainly was not the most talented student, but I knew how to really work hard. I knew how to like work harder than everybody else. And I would do crazy stuff in the pool that no one, would else, no one else would do. I'd do 20 times 200 butterfly on some ridiculous interval, like just crazy stuff that, you know, this is when I was 15, 16 years old. And I was learning like, oh, when I do this stuff that no one else does, like I actually get better. And then applying that in the classroom of just studying, you know, harder than anybody else, all that kind of stuff. So this is like so, grit gone awry. Yeah, like like crazy grit. But I'm being rewarded for it. So in my mental, you know, my mental math math skills, like I'm thinking, well, this is this is how I'm getting ahead in the world, right? This is my secret weapon. So that's how I got to Stanford. That's how I got into Harvard. That's how I was able to hoodwink my way onto the Stanford swimming team by working harder than everybody else. Um, and I think that when I applied that kind of level of focus and, and things that I'd learned in the pool to my life, I was able to sort of bifurcate my life and get away with things that maybe I shouldn't have been able to get away with. Did you apply that I same could mask what I, I could mask that double life if I just worked hard enough in the pool or worked hard enough in the classroom, then I don't have an alcohol problem. Because if I get a good grade, then I can rationalize my drinking and say, well, it's not that bad. Oh, there you go. Okay. So that was so a big part So you it. actually applied the grit in the classroom, um, at school, and the same type of grit in drinking. For sure. Yeah. yeah everything, everything a thousand percent. Yeah. Okay. So, and that, that, so you know how to go for it. It's another, right? You went big in in swimming, school, and, and partying. Yeah. And I th this is one of the reasons um, we don't talk about this enough. We don't talk about the cost of going for it big and what what some of the, the, the pitfalls are of that, especially for those that we celebrate being the best in the world because we think it's so glossy. Mm -hmm. And when we strip back and have these conversations, it, it, it's just not that. <laughs> Yeah. It's not as clean and, and glossy as, as um, people would imagine. So, okay, so you go for it. That's how you did it. And then you could tell yourself this story. Well, if I'm going for it and getting the grades, I'm not, I don't have 
this grit isn't a real problem on the alcohol and, and partying side of things. Correct. Yeah. And then, okay, beautiful. Were you on the path of mastery at that point? No. No. So, well, let's define mastery. Let's first do, of all, let's go, you know, so should I ask you how you define it? You're looking at me like you want me to define <laughs> totally. it. This is your term, right? <laughs> yes. So no, it's not, no, it's a, it's an ancient term, I think, you know, well, I get, yeah. Like how would I define it though? Without, without knowing how it's properly defined. I mean, I would say that mastery is when you have sort of full command of all of your faculties and that everything in your life, you know, emotional, mental, physical, and spiritual is is firing on all cylinders and is properly calibrated and balanced so that you're tapped into who you authentically are you're you're fully in in your power in terms of 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 moving in the trajectory that you're meant to move in wow okay is that all right no 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 no. Uh, okay so what if what if your authentic self you are selfish or and you might say, what are you talking about? But what if, what if like you really are a jerk? That's your true authentic self. Yeah, I, I don't know. What do you think about that? I think that that selfishness or, you know, assholery or whatever you want to call it. Those are, those are, those are, uh, I would say that you're not, if you're, if you're manifesting those behavior qualities, that you're not, that you're not in mastery because usually those are a mask for something else, whether it's a fear or some pain that you're harboring that you compensate for outwardly by perpetrating like negative, you know, personality patterns. Okay. I love it. If there's three, if we follow, pull on this thread of, from a philosophical standpoint, there's three basic ways that people talk about human nature. I'm going to oversimplify it, but there's people are born good and beautiful, just right. People are born, not that (laughs) evil or greedy or selfish or, you know, not just not in, in, um, not good. We'll make Mm -hmm. it really simple. And then tabula rasa that they're born a blank slate. So good, not good. And then blank slate. And I'm curious if you thought about those three frames in reference to your definition, which is it, it, it's fitting for you to be able to let that roll off your tongue, your definition of mastery, the way you just did. Would you ascribe to one of those three definitions of human nature? I don't know that I would. I mean, you know, maybe I'm a crazy new age hippie, but I I think that if you, if you look at it from the perspective of that, everybody has like a higher consciousness packed inside of them. And our job is to access that and express that that there is, there is a good and worthy, you know, soul yearning to be expressed within all of us. Yeah. So, well, that, and that to me, that sounds like the, that sounds like the first category. Yeah. Like you're born, you said, did you say higher consciousness? Yeah. I mean, you can use whatever phraseology you want to characterize that. Yeah. yeah. Whether that's born in the likeness of a deity, God or whatnot, meaning a more kind of hippie mm-hmm. uh, approach to it, the spiritual consciousness. And I'm not, I'm not weighing in on the conversation. I'm just wanting to understand that you would say that people are basically born right and they have access packed in to that, whatever rightness is. And I think Buddhism would call it righteousness. Mm -hmm. And there's a right way of thinking. There's a right way of doing. And if you can string those together in a present way, you get, you know, you, you will eventually reach even living Nirvana or, or post. So you would ascribe to the first part. 
Yeah, I would. And I think to be clear, it doesn't mean that, you know, every, that anybody can be LeBron James, but I think we all have some innate, uh, you know, talent or uniqueness within us that's perfectly created. Um, and our job is to figure out what that is and express that to the best of our abilities. I love it. That's it's exactly what I want to do for my son. Mm. That's exactly what I hope I'm helping people do that are wanting some sort of um, uh, relationship to, to for them to grow. Is okay. So, what are your strengths? What are your natural gifts? What are the things that are calling inside of you? Right. And what are the things that are getting in the way of that? It's a beautiful. Uh, it's a beautiful form of advocacy to do that because I think that in our culture, you know, we're you know, mainstream society does not foster that, you know, we have lanes that we're supposed to be in. And if you're, if your authentic self is not resonating with one of those lanes, then you're living a life of dissonance. And unless there's someone like yourself there, who's kind of teasing on that and saying, well, forget about the lane, you know, what is it that's pulling on you? What, you know, what are the, what are the messages that you're getting inside of yourself that you feel are not expressed or that you would like to express more fully? It's not encouraged to the extent that it should be. And, you know, again, with me, it took me until I was, you know, 41, 40 years old to start listening to those, you know, voices inside of me. And they're very simple. Like they're very like, you know, uh, I just like the way the sun feels on my shoulder on a trail run. You know, I, I like what it feels like when I jump in a swimming pool. It's not like, oh, I need to have this career or, you know, my bank account needs to look like that. It's none of that. It's like really primal basic stuff for me. And when you increase the frequency of that, you would also increase your attunement to being present. To being present. And also I think recalibrating your, your compass and your trajectory. Like the more you listen to that, then suddenly you're moving in a little bit of a different direction. And then the universe shows up with different clues about, you know, decisions you can make and directions that you can go. And it becomes more of a faith-based path where you're listening to your internal hard drive as opposed to what society is telling you you should or you shouldn't do and it's a scary thing to do you know but it, my experience is you know in my experience it's been the most rewarding thing that I've ever done and that doesn't mean that it's been easy it's been the hardest thing I've ever done I mean it's not for the weak of heart you know it's definitely a warrior's path it really is difficult to do to have and again there goes this idea of courage to listen to get connected to listen and then to carve that path Hmm. That's what, um, I don't think I've ever said my my philosophy out loud uh, to to you or, or in this medium, but um, I'll share it with you if you're yeah. interested. Yeah. Um, and so I I have this desire to want to unpack before, but I'm just going to say it: to be guided by my inner spirit, to have the courage to carve that path with grace, excellence, and right fucking now. I like that. Yeah, and. The, the idea is like, can, can you have, the, can I have the courage to first be connected and then to carve the path according to what I've been connected to, which is oftentimes it feels like I'm zigging when most people are zagging mm -hmm. when, uh, that part, that part's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. On that note, do you have, do you have a working philosophy or a way that you have a phrase or something that guides your life? You know, nothing, nothing that is completely overarching. You know, I, I tend to default to a lot of the principles that I learned in recovery. And, and some of those have been very helpful to me. I mean, one is, you know, mood follows action. 
that sort of gets me out of bed in the morning and <laughs> gets me out of my own, you know, the chatter of my idle thinking mind. That's not always my friend. Um, you know, stuff like one day at a time. I mean, like really cheesy recovery stuff, but actually, you know, kind of profound and fundamental. I think AA and the recovery community is one of the more powerful um, movements. And I, I don't, I, I think I know what I mean when I say that word, that that's under-celebrated, misunderstood, and is maybe one of the most powerful things that has happened for um, uh, just an entire generation of people. And it's, it's truly an extraordinary thing. I mean, not only did it save my life, it saved the lives of, of, of so many of my friends. And, and it was two uh, people, Dr. It Bob, was just Dr. Bob and, and, and Bill, Bill, you know, yeah. Bill W. These two dudes who, uh, you know, were just trying to not drink and trying to figure it out. And between the two of them, they were able to come up with this set of principles and put this book together that has literally saved millions and millions of lives. And when you kind of crack the book and read it, um, it's very folksy and it's it's very colloquial in its language and somewhat dated. But the, the truisms and the principles, you know, beneath the stories told and the kind of, um, you know, guiding mechanism that helped them get sober is really profound and has its root in, you know, a variety of spiritual traditions. And the fact that the organization didn't implode in the way that they structured it to prevent that is really a marvel, I think, of the 20th century. Right, because there's no grandstanding that you're in it, that you're not in it. There's no representation. There's, It's unbelievable how this has worked. I can't wait for someone to, to figure out a way to highlight this in a, in a way that's going to capture um, a critical mass of people. Because yeah. it, to me, like this is a very simple statement, it's principle-based and it's, it uh, helps people that want to be in a tribe to fit into a tribe. There's no boss. There's nobody in control. And, uh, it, it, you know, the only requirement is that you have a desire to stop drinking. That's it. And, you know, frankly, I think everybody would be well served by, you know, doing the 12 steps because it really is a recipe for connecting with yourself and, and, uh, and improving your life, you know? And I think that, Look, you know, every five years or so, somebody comes down the pike and says, you know, it's nonsense. And now I have the new solution for recovery or some medical based or pharmaceutical approach to solving the problem of addiction. And, you know, even if that was perfectly figured out, I wouldn't take it because for me, it's a it's a spiritual disease, you know, and the and the and the solution um, is spiritual in nature, too. And mm. by by embarking on that journey, a journey that doesn't have a destination, it's improved my life in miraculous ways well beyond just, you know, it's for me, it's not about, not that I don't have the occasional craving and I certainly don't do recovery perfectly. I've had my bumps in the road, but on a daily basis, it's not about avoiding a drink. It's about, it's about being in touch with your character defects and having tools and resources to grapple with those and, and hopefully, you know, slowly overcome them. Yeah, awesome. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AG1. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know what a big supporter I am of AG1. And it's almost been for a decade now. So I love what they're doing. I, it's something I drink just about every day. And part of their marketing slogan is that it's a nutritional insurance program. and like, I just, I love that. That's the way it feels for me. And that's because each serving of AG1 delivers a dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and so much more. 
it is a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. I like to take it first thing in the morning, which is also recommended for optimal nutrient absorption. And so what I do is I just fill up my shaker, add some cold water, a scoop of AG1, and a little squeeze of lemon. I shake it up and I'm ready to go. Or if I'm in a rush or you know I'm, I'm ripping and running on the road, I just grab an AG1 travel pack to take with me. I feel great after drinking it, not only because of the nutritional insurance idea, but there's just a there's a sustenance that happens when I drink it. And I love recommending it to friends and family because I know AG1 is formulated with science-informed rigor and the highest quality in mind. AG1 is a supplement I trust to provide the support my body needs daily. And that's why I've loved partnering with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, I want to encourage you to give AG1 a try and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3K2 and also get five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Again, that's drinkag1.com slash findingmastery. Finding Mastery is brought to you by AquaTrue. We all know how important hydration is to performance and recovery and well-being, but it's not just about how much you drink. The quality of your water plays a big role. And if you're like me and you don't fully trust tap water, and I think for good reason, research by the Environmental Working Group has shown that three out of four homes in the U.S. have harmful contaminants in tap water. That's why I'm really excited to introduce AquaTrue. Their purifiers use a four-stage reverse osmosis purification process, and their countertop purifiers remove 15 times more contaminants than ordinary pitcher filters. It's incredible. I can literally taste the difference in my water. Plus, the filters are affordable and long-lasting. Just one set of filters from their classic purifier makes the equivalent of 4,500 bottles of water. That adds up to less than three cents per bottle. It feels great to know that all at once, I'm saving money, getting the highest quality water for the Finding Mastery team, and helping make a positive impact on the environment by eliminating single-use plastics all the way around. AquaTrue comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, and it even makes a great gift. And right now, because you're a Finding Mastery listener, you receive 20% off any AquaTrue purifier. So just go to AquaTrue.com. You spell it A-Q-U-A-T-R-U.com and enter the code Finding Mastery at checkout. Again, that's aquatrue.com. Enter the Finding Mastery code at checkout to receive 20% off any purifier that you buy there. Okay. Is, uh, have there been one or two people or who comes to mind when you think about the people that have shaped your life? Or I'm, let me say it better, that have deeply influenced the shape of your life? Hmm. Char- like sort of common character traits? No, just like are there one or two people that come to mind that have... Uh, that help you believe in the path that you're on was possible. Yeah. I mean, I think the first, first and foremost is my wife, Julie. I mean, she's, none of this would have happened without her. And for all the kind of spiritual work that I do, I'm a complete amateur compared to her level of commitment. I mean, she's somebody who's constantly, you know, trying to expand her horizons with, you know, reading tons of books and she's been, you know, an avid meditation practice practitioner for, you know, well before I ever met her and just a wealth of like understanding and knowledge, but most of all courage. And, and I think in our relationship, you know, when we got together, I had a year of sobriety, 
but I was working as a lawyer still and she, and I wasn't taking care of myself and she was always able to see like a better me behind the like literal and figurative density that I was walking around in. And she kind of held that space, you know, not in a like here you need to do this or try, you know, she was just always kind of like this rock and, and kind of had this understanding that I could be living in a, in a, in a totally different way. And so when I started to wrestle with that in a very messy way by, you know, going out, going and riding my bike and, you know, doing all these things, like I was connecting with myself physically as a way to grapple with and answer these questions for myself. Like I was mentioning earlier, you know, at the same time we were having a lot of financial problems and, you know, there was a lot of like sort of everything was not cool, you know, in terms of like just mm -hmm. the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And I think a lesser partner would have just been like, what are you doing? Like, you need to go back to work and you need to like solve this problem. And she, she did the opposite. She's like, what you're doing is important. I know it's important and you need to not worry about anything else. And you need to do this. Cause I can tell that this is how you're going to answer these questions for yourself and become that guy that I know that you can become. And that like level of commitment to me and her ability to kind of see in a long-term way that this was the correct path, I think is remarkable because I don't think, I don't know anybody else who would have done that. Is there one idea that you would hope she would understand uh, about your experience with her? Yeah, it's funny. Um, because in the wake of kind of accomplishing these athletic goals and getting some media attention for it. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I was just doing this for myself and then suddenly people were paying attention and, you know, Sanjay Gupta came to my house and did a story for CNN and men's fitness, you know, names me one of the 25 fittest men in the world, which is like preposterous because, you know, I'm not even anywhere close to that, nor have I ever been. But the fact that like this media attention was happening was all very focused on like what I had done and it, and it was in this narrative of like weight loss because I'd lost 50 pounds and like that's kind of like the clickbaity, you know, story that grabs eyeballs. And it's ludicrous because the weight loss was such a nominal aspect of what was really going on. Like I said, it's always been this spiritual journey and it was fortified and fueled completely by her strength and confidence in me. And so as the saying goes, like, oh, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a great woman behind every great man or however that goes, like she was never behind me. Like she was out in front of me, like the tip of the spear, like clearing the brush so that I could do this. And so if there's anything that I want her to really understand is that I honor that and I'm very aware of that. And I think more people need to understand that aspect of it. It wasn't like she was at home, you know, cooking and making sure that I was well fed. Like she was the one who was doing the harder work, which was to make it okay for me to blaze this path. And maybe even to see what was possible. Correct. Which is like, I think one of the greatest gifts of love is to think deeply and to express those uh, ideas that is what's possible for another human mm -hmm. being. Yeah. yeah. And so have you told her? I have told her. Yeah, I have told her. What's that like? It's beautiful. You know, I mean, there's a, you know, that really that experience of being in this crucible of emotional and spiritual pain as we were grappling with this at the same time having to weather like 
financial devastation. I mean, we were having cars repossessed. I mean, it was like, oh, I mean, talk about like vulnerability and like, you know, like, like, you know, keeping up with the Joneses and not know, like there was a lot of stuff that was getting pulled right out from underneath us. And friends and family were like, you're crazy. What are you doing? Like we became like pariahs, you know, and for her to hold that strength and say, I don't care. Like it doesn't matter. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that we see this journey through. And I think that we're on the right journey. It was amazing. Mm. How'd you guys meet? In a yoga class. <laughs> <laughs> Did you realize oh, that's too funny? I know. Yeah, oh no, I was like, uh, it's funny because I get out of rehab and the one thing that they kind of left me with as I, as I, you know, made my way back into the world, they were like, you know what? You shouldn't date anyone for like a year. Like you need to like mm-hmm. sort your stuff out mm-hmm. and really get to know yourself because women were always a big trigger, like being like sort of uneasy and navigating dating and all that kind of stuff. And it was very like complicated for me. So I did, I took that advice and nearing the end of the year, I started going to yoga and that was really helping me. Um, but she was in the class, but my year wasn't up yet. You know, it's like, I waited almost to the very end of the year before I asked her out. And then she's the only woman that I've been with since I've been sober. Mm. All very new. So, yeah. Yeah. Is there, are you a rule taker or risk taker rule? I'm sorry, rule follower or risk taker. I've always been a rule follower to my fault, I think. And my wife has always been a risk taker. So is the yeah. So, there. you know, I was always like kind of fundamental to this whole thing for me is, you know, this idea of, of chasing the American dream my whole life. You know, like I grew up study hard, get the good grades, get into the best college, get into the best law school, get the best corporate law, you know, like all the, like, I'm very good at following those rules. Even when I was a crazy alcoholic, like I knew how to like work within the system and, you know, implicit in that for me was always the promise, not only of, you know, sort of prosperity and social acceptability and financial security, but happiness. This is the way that you have a happy life. And I played that game, you know, imperfectly and with all my left turns and, you know, like destroying it all with drugs and alcohol and then having to rebuild it and get it all back only to arrive at this place at 39 of going, this is not making me happy. Why didn't I ask myself these questions earlier? You know, so that was the existential crisis part of the equation that was really starting to blossom. Okay. So there's two, I got another double kind of prong or two step question, which is, so there's difficultness that you've experienced by this, um, I don't know, maybe facade of, of the American dream leading to happiness, um, through achievement. And, that the, the two prong question is what is the most difficult moment you've faced in your life? And um, more, more important to me about that is as a reference point to the second part of the question, which is what do you do when you're in an, on an ultra event and you run into a place where you want to stop mm. and it's painful and you've got pain and deep uncomfortable as, um, as part of the, your experience. Mm-hmm. And so I'm wondering if, because if we just ask the second part, like, what do you do with your mind? And you say, oh, I do this, this, and this, that it, do, it doesn't have any context for people because it is in relationship to the first part of the question, which is what is the most difficult moment in your life or t- time in your life if you want to, but, you know, uh, more concretely, is there a specific time that comes to mind that's been one of the most difficult for you? 
Yeah, I would say in terms of the most difficult decisions I ever had to make, there's really two. I mean, the first one was the decision to go to rehab. Was that the most difficult moment in your life, whether to abandon drinking? Was that the moment? It was frightening to abandon drinking, but I think even scarier for me was the fact that that people were going to know that I had a problem. It wasn't it wasn't my own like I knew I was an alcoholic, like I I'd been dabbling in AA to no avail because I was relying on my self-will to solve a problem, solve this problem that couldn't be solved that way. And I had to get to that point of surrender. But the scariest part was that, you know, as somebody who had premised their entire life on this, you know, facade of the American dream, this was not a lateral move, you know, to like go to rehab, right? So it was frightening from the perspective of derailing like this trajectory that I thought I was on that, you know, was leading me to this place that I thought I wanted to go. And what was that moment like for you? Terrifying. Do you remember where you were or what you were wearing to that level? Yeah, it was so terrifying that I had to get drunk in order to manage it, you know, and I showed up at rehab like loaded because just the idea that I was doing it yep. was so frightening to me that I had to medicate myself just to get there. Yeah. And so did you have that, that if go right back to that moment, what allowed you to actually make the decision to go, even though you went drunk? But what was what allowed you to make that decision? And then I want to get to the second part of the question, which is what mm-hmm. do you do with your mind when it's in your in your sport when it's difficult? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what got me to that point was I had started seeing a psychiatrist, an addiction medicine specialist, who's an amazing guy, um, and you know he could see right through my bs like the whole you know it's like the you know the deal right <laughs> but he's patiently you know tolerating my nonsense for you know weeks on a time weeks at a time and i'd stay sober for a little while and then i'd relapse and he's like you really ought to think about treatment you know and i was like no not you know i just couldn't go there and he knew i had to get there on my own in order for it to work and so he made a deal with me i said listen i'm going to try this one more time but if i relapse again i i, I will go I made that deal with him and of course I relapsed. And so I did it like, I felt like I was honoring this deal that I had made with him by fulfilling that promise. So that's that's really what kind of catalyzed it for me. Um, but it was the beginning of the process of opening up to another person. But you know, I wasn't being completely honest with him. Mm. It wasn't until I got to rehab that I, I got really stripped down and was ready to do that. Mm. But the second part of that, because I said there was a second decision was, you know, after I, had maybe a year and a half for coming up on two years of sobriety, I made the decision to quit my corporate law job and walk out on that. And that was the other most frightening thing for me because everything in my life had been programmed. Like I always knew where everything was going. And when you have a job, you're like on a track, right? And I'd never been without a track. And then to quit, I had no, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I didn't have another job. I didn't, I had maybe enough money to live for two months, three months at the outset. And just knew I couldn't continue to show up at that at that place anymore, and and left without a plan. That was terrifying, because that was the first. But I'd learned in sobriety, like you can you can you can jump, you know, if you can be in that place of faith. And I knew on in in my heart of hearts that 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 this career was not right for me, and I had to trust that if I had the courage to leave, that something would show up. There's a lot of risk in that because yeah. it doesn't, I don't think it always works for people. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. I think, I think it works for you 
when you've done enough inside work to really know where you're supposed to go. Yeah. Okay. If you haven't and you cavalierly, you know, jump, but you haven't done that work, then it's less likely that the solution's going to show up or that you're going to be attuned enough to see the right path when it does show up. Brilliant. And then what do you do with your mind when you're in pain and you still haven't crossed? Yeah, uh, you have to you have to break it down into into really small increments. You know, I think, you know, if you're running a, an ultra marathon and you're only halfway done and you feel like you're torqued, like you got to just break it down to the next street lamp. You know, I just got to make it like the the more you can remove your mind from the equation and and turn off that mental chatter and and stay focused and be present then the more likely you are to be able to uh you know tap into something a little bit more deeply um david goggins that guy we were talking about earlier said something that always stuck with me that i think about a lot which is uh when you think you're done you've actually only accomplished about 40 percent of what you're truly capable of you know <laughs> he's so a good. living example of that yeah and it's it's really true i've proved that out in my own life and so I've, I've taken it, you know, in training, I've taken it to the limit and surpassed that enough times to know that we all have this deeper reservoir of potential and capability within us. Um, so it's there. And what know. do you do at that nexus? Do you associate with your heart rate, with the breathing, with your, um, the, the slapping of your feet, the slapping of the water, you know, the, the, if you're swimming, the rotation of hips, of your hips like what do you associate or do you disassociate and get connected to um to the external world around you uh sometimes it's breath you know in running it can be breath like focusing on your breath counting your breaths anything to focus the mind mm -hmm. um, and distract it from the pain is good but sometimes it is completely dissociative mm -hmm. you know to just completely sometimes just completely checking out and tuning out completely and kind of how do you know, know how to, when to do which one i don't know that i do okay i don't yeah. know that i do yeah I, I don't want to ask you to solve something i don't understand yet mm -hmm. but I, I was hoping that you would say that you know there's certain times that i try association which is in tune with yourself and there's certain times that doesn't work and i quickly get out of and just look at like you know, try to find a bird or try to find a, a, a shades of green around me that are interesting, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, sometimes visualization, you know, even in the moment can be, can be really powerful. Like if you've put the training in, like I knew going into Ultraman that I was going to be able to do it because I, I'd, I'd done ridiculous training sessions. Like I'd run 45 miles in training. So I knew that my body mm. was capable of running 52 miles. Mm. Um, so thinking back on that training day when you were so tired and you still were able to get through it. Like, I think those are confidence builders. Got it. Okay. So if you, you know, if you've put the work in, you can tap into that. If you haven't put the work in and you're trying to fake it, then good luck. Yeah. No, hundred percent. However, when in training, so going from, did you say 40 something to 52, mm -hmm. 45 miles to 52, if you haven't done 40 mile 46 or 51, how would you, that's the threshold I'm talking about. And even if you, you, you feel that, um, inner sh struggle at mile 22, but if I'm talking about that place in time as well, when you haven't been there yet. Yeah. So, well, I can, I can give you a specific example. I remember being at, in my first Ultraman race in 2008. Where were you? In, uh, in Hawaii. 
So the way Ultraman works is the first day is a uh, 6.2-mile swim and a 90-mile bike. second day is 170 miles on the bike. And the third day is a 52-mile run, double marathon run. And uh, I had done, like I said, you know, I'd done, a four, I'd done these crazy training weekends where I would assimilate, I would, I would simulate the Ultraman distance over the course of a weekend. I would do it like 70% of it. And then a month later, I'd do 80% of the Ultraman over like a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then like, you know, six or eight, eight weeks before the race, I did like 90% of it. So I knew I could handle, like mm -hmm. I could mm -hmm. approximate the distance and manage it. And that was just in training. But then again, you know, 52 miles isn't 45 and you're not in the race and you're not pushing as hard. So I can remember being in the last, you know, 10K of that 52 mile run on the third day of Ultraman and the wheels are coming off the wagon. And I remember very specifically tapping into all of the sacrifice, like stepping back that I, that, that I had undergone to get to that point from quitting the law firm job to taking a flyer and, you know, getting a bike and riding it for like all the, these crazy experiences that seemed to make no sense at the time that had led to that moment and all the decisions I'd made and all the sacrifices that my family had made, frankly, to help me get to that place that makes it so much more emotionally, um, potent and the stakes, you know, seem so much higher. And that like emotional energy was what carried me through that. How long did it fuel you for the, the full 10 K or did you just need a jolt? Uh, no, it, it got me through maybe until the last half mile. <laughs> it's not a sustainable energy source, I think, but, yeah. uh, it's better than a red bull. If yeah. you can really connect uh -huh. with that. Uh, can you teach about the central governor? that that concept that we have a limiter to um, how hard we can go or how hot will allow our body to to feel so that we don't die hmm. so i'm trying to wrap my head around like how to approach this science is, science is wanting here yeah yeah the, yeah the concept is wanting that theory is beautiful and i love it and I, i'm going to nod my head to say we're on to something, um, you know, Noakes in particular, the scientists, but I'm just wondering how, as a, as a N of one who's faced down the, his own central governor and move beyond the threshold of this mechanism inside our body that says, Hey, listen, shut her down. Stop. You're about mm -hmm. to blow up how you've changed that governor. I think it, I don't overcomplicate that really. You know what I mean? I think you, if your body really needs to shut down, it'll shut down well in advance of, you know, you like getting into too much trouble. So, well, so, but this is the, why lactic acid in brain, brain is released is to begin to create agitation in our muscular system to slow down. Mm -hmm. And somehow you've changed the point in which lactic acid and brain is released for you. Yeah, but that's just that's muscle memory from training. Got I mean, it. you have to take yourself to that place in training time and time again. And the more that you do that, your body acclimates to that. You know, your body can acclimate to way more than I think that, you know, we allow ourselves to believe. And, you know, a perfect example would be, you know, someone like Dean Karnazes, the great ultra marathon mm -hmm. runner. I mean, that guy can go out and run a marathon before breakfast every single day at mm -hmm. a four hour pace, three and a half hours. And it's just not that taxing to him. At one point in his life, that was a very taxing thing to do, but he has done it so much that for him, 
it, it requires the amount of mental and emotional and physical energy that it might require somebody else to go out and run two miles. So it's about pushing, you know, pushing your own boundaries of your own capabilities, what you think you can do, what you physically can do, and what you believe that you can do. And when you train yourself up to that point time and time again, that threshold, you know, gets pushed up. Got it. And then of all the mental skills that we have, calm, confidence, the ability to focus in the present moment, to trust ourselves, the pre-performance routines, goal setting, imagery, all, all of that stuff that uh, a typical performance psychology program would, would highlight, which are the most important? You might say all of them, or you might say uh, above yeah, all. I mean, I think, I think for me, the one that's most powerful is, is, is mindfulness and trying to anchor yourself into the present, you know? And I think that when you can do that, for me, I've had that experience where you tap into a strength that doesn't seem like it's coming from you. Like it feels like you're tapping into some universal, you know, umbilical cord that can fuel you beyond, you know, your own personal perception of your capabilities. But it requires you to really have command over your over your thinking mind to really, you know, disassociate the mental chatter from the higher consciousness and and learning how to rely on the higher consciousness and and tap into that like sort of heart based approach. Um, that I think that can fuel you, you know, beyond your, your perceived limiters. Mm. Awesome. What, is there a word that cuts to the center of what you understand most? I think, uh, you know, I, I really think faith, you know, I think faith, not in a, not in a religious way whatsoever, but a deep belief um, of being of being guided. You know, I think that that has been a predominant theme in in everything that's happened to me. And it, and it you know it's sort of it's that thing where if I look backwards on my life, like everything seems like it lined up perfectly to bring me to this point where I'm sitting here having this conversation with you, but it's actually insane. It's completely ludicrous that this is what I would be doing because my life was on a completely different path. The only reason that I'm here sitting talking to you is because I made a decision to stop living my life according to a set of rules that seemed inconsistent with how I wanted to live my life. In, but it wasn't logical. There was no logical, there was no rational explanation for it. And I instead made this decision to start living more like based on, on my instincts and my heart, where my heart was leading to me and having that trust, having the faith that if I did that, that somehow things would work out in a way that would lead to a better way of living for myself. And that has indeed been the case. And like I said, it has been the, a warrior's path. It's been incredibly difficult, but, but that's really why it happened. Yeah. And I, I keep wanting to go unwind and I don't, I don't know how many, I'm still wanting to understand what allowed you to do that. And I know you've said it. <laughs> well, I think pain. Okay. You know, I think I was in enough pain. Like for me, the only thing that's ever gotten me to change is pain. Like when I was in enough pain from drinking and using, I had the willingness to get sober. When I was in enough pain from, you know, like being a lawyer and living this life that I didn't want to live, I had the courage to make a change. So it, it's almost, have we ever talked about that? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. Cause that's exactly what I, that's a truth that I've come to understand as well is that the reason we change is because of pain. 
And when we can get honest enough or be beat over the head enough that we'll say, I'm done with this. And some people die before they get to that place. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I've, I've unfortunately in the most tragic ways that takes place where, uh, people are not able. And I have family members that have gone down this path. They weren't able to change. And, um, if I think one of the greatest gifts we can give people, it sounds like maybe your wife did this for you is to help you, uh, in two ways. One is see what's possible. And the second is be honest about the pain Mm. and try to take someone else's pain away is like a sure way to keep them on track towards, Yeah, you know, well, also if, if pain wasn't required, then, you know, nobody would overeat or nobody would, you know, like everybody would be living very differently. The truth is, is that, you know, if your elevator's going down, it doesn't have to go all the way down. You can get off at any time. It's just a lot more difficult to get off the elevator when you still got many floors to go. And so for people that are on a path, it's working okay for them. They have, you know, uh, a house, two cars, two and a half kids, a golden retriever, you know, that American kind of iconic um, image that we put forward, but it's just okay for them. That's the hardest place to be, I think. Yeah, I it's, think not, that's, it's not horrible. Yeah, that's that makes it far more difficult, I think, to change. And this is why it's just people, tiring and this dull. Is, this is why people, why you hear people in recovery say that they're a grateful alcoholic. And I remember when I was newly sober, thinking, why would you say that? Like, what an, what a bizarre thing to say. But the reason that they say it, and why I now embrace that that same perspective, is that. Being a, a, a drug addict or an alcoholic took them to such a dark place that they had to finally look at themselves in the mirror, grapple with who they are, ask themselves those hard questions, you know, and reconfigure their life and, and live differently. And that's what, you know, basically allowed them to then flourish and become happy, productive human beings. So without without that painful experience yeah. or that history, they never would have gotten there this is why i think i've shared with you some of my most favorite people in the world are people that have done just that and they tend to be people that have gone through the community of aa or otherwise and um they faced they faced down and asked and answered some very serious questions Mm -hmm. and is there one question that you would say has been really important to you that maybe you could say i hope people wrestle and grapple with this one question for, for themselves yeah, I mean the the ultimate question is, who are you? That, right. I was I was wondering if you're going to yeah, say like that. Yeah, like who who are I mean who, who are you? Who am really? I? Is yeah, the question. Who am, who am I? I? Yeah. And and you know when you're in pain, you're really ready to to really have a wrestling match with that. But when you got two cars in the garage and everything's pretty good, and maybe you don't like your boss or whatever, it's a lot harder to really deal with that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think. Not that it's impossible. It's certainly possible for everybody, but you're lacking that that extra, you know, turbocharged push that you know a little emotional pain is going to give you. Ooh, okay. Um, gosh, I'm doing it again over an hour. I keep That's wanting right, to make. Man. Yeah, I know. It's a podcast. We can go as long as you want, man. There's no rules. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you should teach me. How, how can? Um, what are some traps I'm walking into, or some ways that I can get better? at podcasting and cause knowing that you've been doing this for three years and have a uberly successful podcast. I don't know, man. I'm i uh, I'm pretty impressed. Like you're, you're getting stuff out of me. No one's ever gotten out of me before. So I think you're, I think you just should just keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> you know? What was the hardest thing we've talked about today? Uh, the hardest thing, the hardest thing for me is to not 
for me, it's it's to not fall into the trap of just repeating an answer that I've repeated before and to actually think about the questions. But you're great because you're asking me questions people aren't don't generally ask me. You know, it's like if yeah. I get the same question, then I I kind of can default into the stock answer that I always give, and then I go, is that really true, or do I just keep saying that? Is you that know the story I, mean? I created at one time? Yeah. So so for me, the work in an interview context like this is to really try to. Like I said, like be as authentic and, and as honest as possible and to not just default to a stock answer. What do most people ask you? Oh, you know, what What was it? You know, why did you adopt a plant-based diet? Like what happened when you were, you know, tell walk me through that episode before you turned 40 when you decided to change? What made you decide to change? It's like standard stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And, and to pull on the thread a little bit differently or different, what? what was different about our questions? Cause I feel like we're talking about that same. We are, but you're time. not approaching, you're approaching it indirectly. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm definitely, you know, I'm definitely on the couch. Today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel like I am too. Um, I'm getting a free that, session once again. Well, I, I wonder if that is, um, by accident. Uh, I think that you, anytime we're in conversations where we're trying to be honest, that we're going to say things that maybe we haven't articulated or that are truthful mm-hmm. in either way that, that, you know, that's part of the inner wrestle. Okay. So can I ask another question yeah, about the it. inner experience is what's the, what's the most critical thing you say to yourself that, um, you're ready to drop, but haven't figured out how to do it. Interesting. I mean, you know, I, I'm a, I'm teaming with, you know, all kinds of character defects. Mm-hmm. Um, Thank God it's only you and not me. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, right? I'm aspiring to your level of character defect, lack of character defects, right? Well, then we, then we have we have that model broken because <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm doing the same wrestle right. and dance within myself. Yeah, yeah. I think that that you know I tend to I get all up in my head, you know, and I and I tend to um, I still tend to isolate, and I try to uh, I still want to control everything, and. I have difficulty letting people in and letting people help me. So it's that vulnerability of, of allowing people to assist me um, and understanding that if I want to take like the work that I'm doing, the advocacy work that I'm doing to the next level, like I can't, you know, I can't do it all on my own. I can't be the guy who's doing the interviews and editing the audio and, you know, writing the blog post and trying to edit videos and write a book. And like, I just can't do it all. So delegation is a is a new frontier for me and and something i struggle with and look i get really you know a good a good barometer of my spiritual fitness is how you know irritable i get i just get really irritable when i'm not taking care of myself and judgmental and selfish and self-serving and you know there's no room for that in my life i got four kids i have people that depend on me and and it's a weird thing now cuz i'm like this semi you know, I'm, I'm this person who's decided to live their life very, very kind of publicly and vulnerably. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I'm very transparent, mm-hmm. but it's a bizarre feeling to live that way, right? To feel like that perhaps my life's being examined more than others who are cagier about that or just choose to live more privately. And that's a bargain that I've willingly made. And it's one that I feel like connects with people and allows them to feel okay with whatever they're going through and hopefully can help them navigate that for themselves. So I'm happy to do that, but it, it, 
it sometimes can create a little discomfort. Do you ever notice that um, when you're talking about things where you are struggling with the need to feel in control or be in control that um, your body temperature heats up and there's uh, like unpredictable tension that um, yeah, my flush right now. No, 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 I'm, no, I'm <laughs> yeah, just for at, sure. Yeah. And when was the last time you faced, uh, I'll, I'll tell you a good story, but the, the last time you faced that moment where your body temperature heated up as a signal that you're on the edge of being or feeling out of control. Mm. Not everyone feels it in their body, but I think so many of us do. Yeah. Oh, I definitely feel it in my body. I think I feel that when, um, I feel like I'm misunderstood. Like somebody leaves a weird comment on iTunes or on Amazon, one of my books and, and they didn't quite get, you know, out of my, gets, get out of my book or, or my show, like what I'm intending. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's unfair. Then I, then I get like defensive and I feel like I feel that emotional flare up. So uh, one of my mentors, he and I were having a conversation. We're in a restaurant and, um, he asked me a question and all of a sudden my body just, I just felt it like, it was on. And I said, and he said, um, pay attention, you know, because there's that's, this is the moment that you can make some decisions about yourself. Mm -hmm. So I've never forgotten that. Like, that's a really wonderful What did insight. he say? Yeah. Uh, I can't remember at the time because the, it wasn't the question that now looking back, it wasn't the question that he asked. It was the experience that I pulled from that to listen deeply to myself uh -huh. so that I could make some decisions and guide accordingly. And it had to be uh, the conversation that we were having was about being there for other people and letting other people down was, which has been a, um, like every day I go to bed and I've got this struggle that I've, um, I've let at least seven people down. Mm. And he, and so his comment to me around this, I can't remember exactly how he said it, but it was like, um, yeah, you're letting other people down, but you're forgetting that, um, you're letting yourself down in the process. Because, you know, you're not there for other people and, and other people can't be there for you as well. Right. Because I was caught in the busyness of being productive. And so it was some, somewhere around that conversation that I felt it. And he said, listen. I said, oh, my God. So that that's really important to me. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So I look for those moments uh, where that happens. And it's it's a gift, but it's difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, on, on the next um, kind of idea, if we want to get into some of the mindset stuff that I wanted to ask you about is... Can you capture your ideal mindset of what it's like for you to be at your best? My ideal mindset when I'm at my best uh, would mean that I have control over my mental and emotional faculties and I'm able to channel them into a positive direction. In other words, I've been consistently meditating. I've been eating well. Uh, I've been physically training my body. And so it's a balance of sort of mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being that is all kind of like the cogs are all well-oiled mm. and working in synchronicity. That's a very tricky, you know, sort of recipe to brew up because... Is, is there a thought? This is for me, it's so fragile that I can have all that stuff working. Nutrition's right. Spiritual groundedness is right. Mindset is right. My physical and technical trainings are right. I've got a great strategy going forward, and one little thought can undo it if I if I water that thought too much. Oh yeah. Do do you ha do you have a do you have it's awareness? Very fragile. Do you have yeah. awareness of what that thought is for you? Yeah, it, I mean it 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 pulls on the the heartstrings of my underlying low self esteem. Like yeah. who who are you kidding, man? Come on, 
you could tell all these people, <laughs> you know what I mean? But we know. <laughs> yeah. We know what's really going on here. And they're going to find out, man. And when they do, it's all going to come tumbling down. Imposters. When they figure out that yeah. you're just faking it. Right. Yeah. That that exposure, that fear of exposure, mm-hmm. um, which it's interesting. Your approach has been, well, let me just be as real as I can. And so it's almost like a purposefully designed inoc- uh, inoculation to the exposure of being found out because you're saying, I'm trying. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's that's the power of being vulnerable, I think, too. And, I, and I'm always mindful, you know, look, I do this podcast. I get crazy emails every day. Oh, you're, you know, it, you're so inspiring. Your story's inspired me. I went and did this. Inspiration, 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 inspiration. And that, like, freaks me out because I'm like, I don't think of myself in those terms. And I get very nervous when somebody's perceiving me as somebody who stands in a position of authority. Like, I'm like, I'm just, I'm just trying to share openly and honestly, you know? Mm-hmm. So I get uncomfortable with that moniker. And I, I think part of that fear is if I actually start to believe that, then that's going to change how I do what I do. Because I don't want to be the person who is speaking down to people as somebody who has the answers and now I'm divulging them to you. I, I'm just somebody who's on this journey like everybody else. I'm sharing what's working for me, what doesn't, where I'm going wrong, and how I'm trying to improve. Very cool, man. And so I think the more, like the lesson for me in that is the more that you can align your actions with your, you know, your personal truth, not your aspirational truth, but who you really are. Like you, you narrow that gap between how you live your life behind closed doors and how you hold yourself out to the world, you find peace in that because there's, there's, then you're just, you're acquitting yourself in an honest way. Acquitting. That's a lawyer term. Yeah. You're, you're, you're holding yourself out to the world the way that you actually are. What does acquitting mean? I know what acquitting like you're, you're, you're displaying yourself in that way. So what's an acquittal? An acquittal is, yeah. <laughs> well, there's acquitting and acquittal. Acquittal is when you've been, uh, when you've been released, right? Yeah. He's been acquitted. Okay. He's been found free and clear. And so, so say that statement again to me, that when you align your inner and outer world in public and private ways, there's an acquittal? No, you, when you acquit yourself, when you hold yourself out to the world in the same way that you conduct yourself behind closed doors. Yeah, right. Then then you're like bulletproof, right? I think. I like it. So that's yeah. the power in vulnerability. Yeah. What do you hope because the next you're, generation? It's your, it's your secrets, I think, that when you're holding, when you're holding onto those secrets, that's the, fer- that's the fertile ground for all that negative stuff to come up. Is that born out of the idea that you're, we're as sick as our secrets? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Makes you wonder about all the secrets. What, what, what the cost of those are mm. yeah internally as well as the lie you know especially now with uh, i was talking to somebody of the now generation whatever they call that now and um their parents were saying that um, i'm sorry i was talking to the parents of somebody that's in the current generation and they said you know what i have all these baby pictures of myself and they're awful but this was before digital and so now this this probably the now generation and probably maybe the teenagers of, of the, you know, the last generation, um, all of their photos are going to be wonderful because they edit them right? and they can press the trash button or the delete button. 
And so this public facing highlight reel, there's going to be a weird cost to it. Yeah, it remains to be seen the, the the psychological cost of having your entire life document. I mean, it's like you look like I yeah. There's a couple of baby like maybe one every couple months or you know a couple a year when you look back at your parents' photo albums. But imagine being photographed every single day your entire life and having it in the cloud forever. Oh, <laughs> good. It's crazy because I get confused. I don't know if I'm showing my age, but I get confused about some of the things I've seen in photographs, um, about the story around it that I created that might be different than the actual thing I experienced. And I think that's just a true phenomenon for, for humans that, you know, the recapturing of the memory or the actual memory are two different things. Yeah. Memory. Well, memory is very unreliable. Yeah. Very. And that's something when we were talking earlier about how, like I answer questions, you know, a lot of it goes back to, well, what happened when you were, you know, on that staircase and you were 39 and I recount the story and then I go, is that really how it happened? Like, that's how I remember it happened, but I've told it so many times. And when you tell a story, a story is a living, breathing thing that's constantly evolving. It changes every time you tell it. Yeah. And its relationship to, to objective fact can become strained. You know what I mean? So yeah. what did happen? Well, you know one, what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, so. Fact is different than memory. Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. Last question about early on as just a reference point for me. What was your first memory that you ever, ever had? Wow. I think I remember when my younger sister was born. She's like two years younger than me. So you're two and a half? Two? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. And I remember my parents buying me like a little toy toy car garage thing to play with because they knew that the attention was going to be redirected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Were you like, do you remember being in your crib? No. No. So it was a uh, little, you're crawling? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's just a snapshot. I don't remember that much about it. Cool. Okay. F flow on some of these ideas really quickly, right? So uh, the concept of, um, you know, not overthinking it, but just letting it go. When I say orange, you say, mm. go ahead. Orange. Black. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> is that from the TV show? <laughs> yeah, orange, orange is, is the, the new black, black is yeah, probably okay. why I said that. So there we go. Stream of consciousness, right? So just let okay. this thing flow, whatever, whatever happens. Okay. Um, pressure comes from? Inside. It all comes down to you. The crossroad was yourself. If I had a chance to do it over again, I wouldn't. <laughs> Success is finding your authentic self. Love always flow whenever possible. Spirit. The most important thing. My vision is unlimited i am that okay what you got me you know what that is no i am that there's a spiritual book called i am that man yeah tell me more uh i'm trying to remember who wrote it now i'm gonna seem like an idiot because i can't remember who wrote it i am that is it ramayana i can't remember but it's the idea that that um that the ultimate the ultimate question it goes back to like who am i right okay who am i mm -hmm. i am i am that which is everything and nothing there you go very cool okay too fun thank you
Thank you, man. That was awesome. Is is there um, is there anything maybe that you wanted to ask me that 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 you're hoping that we would talk about that we didn't talk about? Yeah, if I was your patient, where would you focus your energy, and mm-hmm. where where do you think that I need help? <laughs> I'm going to take advantage of the yeah. fact that you're. There we go. So for, first, uh, tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah, right. I'd say first order business is that um, I'm not sure what a patient is, mm-hmm. and so Client, whatever. Yeah, like people that I spend time with mm-hmm. is how I think about it, and it feels so medical to have patients. And so I, I think I burned or abandoned that word a long time ago. But the question that you had was like, if we were doing some work together. Mm-hmm. Um, you said, where should I focus? Is that what you said? Mm-hmm. And I would say, um, okay, like what, what do you want to, what change would you like to have happen? Hmm. Like what, what is our agreement that we're going to work on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, um, that's a great question. It's a, it's a, it's something that I feel like I should have total clarity on before I would come to you. So then maybe and we I don't know that I that. do have clarity. Yeah, yeah I we, think, we would just start there probably. Yeah, 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 like yeah. The, the focus then would be, you know, what is the next year to three years to five years? You know, like what's the, what's the thing that you're working towards becoming and the thing that you're working towards doing? And it's the being and the doing and the blending of those two that um, really shape our day-to-day endeavors if we have great alignment. And so I'd, I'd start with that and say, you know, what's it look like? And if you want, we can, we can tease that out a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think for me, you know, the thing that I want to focus on really is how to, I mean, it's really, you know, it, it extends beyond athletics. It's really, how do I take, it, it always does. When yeah. We, this, this yeah. message that I have and this audience that I have and the advocacy that I, that I, that I have to the next level to positively impact the most number of people possible. Okay. And, and built into really, that are what are my personality limiters that are holding me back from accessing my full potential and realizing that, I think. What are the personality limiters? Okay. And then what's keeping and what's holding you back from the potential? Do you know what you stand for? Are you really clear about that? I'm pretty clear. Yeah. And if there's two, three, one, two, three things that you stand for, what are those? Uh, the primary thing would be helping people break free from their own prisons, their mm-hmm. own, you know, internal prisons, professionally, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. And the second part would be helping people develop better habits around food and exercise to live healthier, more fulfilling lives. Mm. And then are you, those are first ones personal. The second one's mechanical. And the first one, like that's about, um, I feel like that would probably be people outside of your family, but I don't think that to be true for you. I think that that would also include people in your family. Yeah, it would, but it's really outward facing. You know what I mean? Like, like if somebody's listening to my podcast, how can I help? How can I use, how can I use these various, um, distribution channels for my voice, for film, for speaking, whatever it is to really impact people in a meaningful way, in a meaningful, positive way. And then, so I'd ask you the really simple question uh, is like, what is getting in your way? And I know that that's the question you want me to answer for Mm -hmm. you, but like, what are the things that are getting in your way? 
I think it goes back to some of the things we talked about before, like trying to be a control freak about everything that I'm doing and, mm -hmm. and, and not being as not, I need, a, there's a lot more that I can learn about team building, I think, and empowering people. Um, and I think that I could use development in becoming more efficient with how I use my time. Yeah. I drill right into that control idea, you know, and we, we would go right into that and begin to have conversations about what would be very concrete ways that you could demonstrate letting go. Mm -hmm. And what that would require is an increased trust. You're right. In that's, your, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and trust has two vectors on yeah. it, trusting self and trusting others. And the ultimate piece about trust is that, listen, no matter what happens, I'm going to adjust, right? I, if the worst stuff happens, I'm going to figure out how to adjust. Mm -hmm. And that's when we, when we can say though that we have a deep sense of our ability to trust. And so I would, I, you know, control and trust are on the opposite sides of the same coin. And so I begin to explore that with you a little bit and, mm -hmm. and then maybe do something really concrete, like uh, a fun little exercise is um, go, go to a restaurant. This would be really hard for you because of your, how important food is for you, but go to a restaurant and uh, allow the waitress or waiter to bring you food. Mm -hmm. That's it. And then eat that and eat that no matter what it is. Well, that would be really hard for you <laughs> yeah, if, you're, would be. if you're plant placed, yeah, plant yeah. based, but uh, you probably go to restaurants that are plant based. Yeah. 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 So, and that's it. So that's like this little mini, tiny, mini little experience of letting go mm -hmm. and then building on that nut in other kind of parts of your mm -hmm. life. And that sounds like almost too trite. Try it out. No, I get it. Yeah. yeah I like yeah. it. Yeah. Try that and play with that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But I, you know, your openness and your courage that you've demonstrated are your strengths and assets and your ability to have the will and the fortitude to go the distance, even when there's pain is certainly going to be the accelerant to exploring your potential. Yeah, man, I got I want to continue to grow. Yeah. You know? As it, as it was said to me and impressed upon me back in rehab, because it all goes back to that. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember this guy, he said, look, man, Every single thought that you entertain, every decision you make, every action that you take is either making you more sober or leading you closer to a drink. And I think that's very appropriate to life. Like you're either with everything that you're doing, you're either growing or you're regressing in one way or another. But we have this idea that we're walking around relatively static. Like I'm cool. It's good. You know, whether it's your relationship or your profession or your athletic career, there is no stasis boils down to every little micro thought that enters your mind and every little tiny decision that you make that adds up into which direction you're moving. And I think about that a lot. Yeah. There's a coach that shared this insight with me. He said the most dangerous words in all of elite sport is I got it. Yeah. I got this. I got it is what he said. And then he added the man, I got this man. <laughs> <laughs> and so that, that was the, those are the most dangerous words in all the sport because uh -huh. it's the antithesis of, of being open. Yeah. Yeah. And so, well, it's a weird thing as an athlete, like you, you, you know, the, the sort of coach mentor athlete relationship is so, is so important and so special. But on the one hand, you have an athlete that needs to be sort of resilient and self guided and built into that kind of like confidence is this idea that you got it. Like you don't need help, but mm -hmm. you have to ask for help. Like it's that asking for help. 
but also having the confidence that you can take care of business. That you can, tr- you can trust. I use the yeah. confidence and, and trust are two different things for me. Uh, I, I, I can trust that whatever happens, I can adjust. And then confidence is, I'm pretty sure that thing over there that I'm setting my sights on, I got a good shot of making that thing work. Right, which is a, maybe a fancier way of saying I got this, but the I got this man is maybe um, has what he was conjuring up is that I'm good, I'm good, I got this, I got this. Mm-hmm. Like I don't need to keep trying to figure out and explore and, and you know, which at some cost, the too much exploring slows us down. Right. It's a weird thought because there is this balance between being and doing that's really important for all of us and too much doing, right, is, mm-hmm. is a problem and too much being, <laughs> mm-hmm. if it could be. You know, it is a problem because we're not actually um, moving it outside of ourselves. Interesting. Yeah. So I, I know we didn't answer your question. I don't know. What was the question? <laughs> yeah. What can I do <laughs> I more or better? Of? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So let's, um, I, I, I appreciate you spending the time. And yeah, man. This has been great. Yeah. And uh, I want to thank you for sending me on this trajectory. And I want to also thank you for in this conversation uh, the way that you bring thoughtfulness and the way that you bring your heart, uh, the way that you bring vulnerability and deep thinking, uh, all wrapped into uh, a conversation that is about pushing limits and going beyond and stretching and straining and letting go and loving. And the appreciation that you have for both your wife and your family unit, um, as well as the career path that you're on that was tre- tremendously different than what you first started mm-hmm. out to be. So I appreciate the entire conversation, but more importantly, I appreciate the way that you show up and uh, it it has a way of creating ease with others. And so I don't know if this was easy for you, but um, I've appreciated it. No, thanks, man. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you and all the work that, uh, that you're doing to uh, carry your message to a broader demographic of people, you know, beyond the people that you work with more intimately on a daily basis. But, you know, your work is important and it's empowering. And uh, I think it's very impactful to your audience. And I would just encourage you to continue with this podcast journey that you're on, man. It's really exciting. And I think you have a really unique voice and you have uh, an aptitude for, um, you know, putting, or I should just say myself, putting myself at ease and, 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 and providing that space so that we can be open and talk about stuff that matters. Yeah, I appreciate it. I feel like I'm running into a trap with these podcasts, which is I I love it and I'm not sure how to continue finding the time (laughs) and the space to do it. And so I've got this dance like to try to meet this need uh, that I somehow artificially created to have one a week. And maybe that's ridiculous, Mm. but um, I feel like to have some consistency, the momentum is important for consistency. And um, I don't know. I, I feel like there's a trap waiting on the other side of this where... Uh, but you know, I'll, I'll certainly ring you up when I get to that place. There's no trap, man, but I will tell you this. I am a ready, willing and able advocate for everything that you're doing and always <laughs> yeah. available as a resource. So cool, man. To call it's me so great and, to have uh, like a community and a tribe. And, yeah, it's cool. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Good. Yeah, I will. I will call you now for sure. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So where can people find out more about what you're doing and what's, what, what's on your heart next? Yeah, sure. So, uh, I mean, the easiest way to track me down is richroll.com, my website. Uh, you can find my podcast there or on iTunes, the rich roll podcast. And my memoir is called finding ultra. Um, and I've got a cookbook that came out this spring called the plant power way. 
can find those on Amazon, and I'm just at Rich Roll on Twitter and Instagram. I'm a pretty easy guy to find online. Yeah, you are. That's great. And then for folks, that, and we were talking about this earlier, like I have no idea how ranking and all that stuff works on iTunes. I don't mm-hmm. know if anyone does, but um, I, you did share a, a nugget, which is which I was on the path of, that when people write reviews, it helps. Absolutely. So everybody should stop what they're doing right now. Go to iTunes <laughs> yeah. and give Michael a review of this podcast immediately. It'll only take you a second. And uh, it doesn't even matter what the review is. Just leave a review. Of course, you're going to leave a five-star review, but you know <laughs> yeah. you know what I'm saying, right? So on Finding and, uh, That does help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Like the, the iTunes algorithm for how they rank podcasts. Listen, if you want visibility for the show, like you got to like play this game, but they're very cryptic about how it works. But I do know that reviews do help. So if you guys have been enjoying all this amazing content that Michael is bringing to you guys for free on a weekly basis, at least so far, right, with Mm -hmm. all these amazing people, come on, do them a favor, leave a review. Love it. Thanks, brother. Okay, so um, until next time. Peace. Thank you so much for diving into another episode of Finding Mastery with us. Our team loves creating this podcast and sharing these conversations with you. We really appreciate you being part of this community. And if you're enjoying the show, the easiest no-cost way to support is to hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. Also, if you haven't already, please consider dropping us a review on Apple or Spotify. We are incredibly grateful for the support and feedback. If you're looking for even more insights, we have a newsletter we send out every Wednesday punch over to findingmastery.com slash newsletter to sign up. This show wouldn't be possible without our sponsors, and we take our recommendations seriously, and the team is very thoughtful about making sure we love and endorse every product you hear on the show. If you want to check out any of our sponsor offers you heard about in this episode, you can find those deals at findingmastery.com slash sponsors. And remember, no one does it alone. The door here at Finding Mastery is always open to those looking to explore the edges and the reaches of their potential so that they can help others do the same. So join our community, share your favorite episode with a friend, and let us know how we can continue to show up for you. Lastly, as a quick reminder, information in this podcast and from any material on the Finding Mastery website and social channels is for information purposes only. If you're looking for meaningful support, which we all need, one of the best things you can do is to talk to a licensed professional. So seek assistance from your healthcare providers. Again, a sincere thank you for listening. Until next episode, be well, think well, and keep exploring.